0: Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon.
1: And I'm Mary McCleskey.
0: So about a year ago, we began a concerted effort to raise awareness about a group of regulations that we believe pose a threat to religious liberty. Um, And while regulations don't normally get a lot of attention... Uh, it was actually a regulation that was the major impetus for the formation of this committee, the, the HHS contraceptive mandates. They can have huge effects on our lives, as, as um, our friend Dan Balzerak talked about uh, about a year ago. I think it was almost exactly a year ago that we, that we did a podcast on this, on this topic. So today we're joined by Madeline Ostertag, who is a third-year law student at Georgetown Law, we are just talking about she has one month left, and then she will be out in the world, about to finish at Georgetown. And she has been working here as an intern at the USCCB Office of the General Counsel. And then we also have Dan Balzerak, who directs our religious liberty work here. Um, so thank you both for joining us today.
2: Yeah, thanks, sir. Thanks, Mary.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so first of all, we just want to get an update on... The what we are calling the the do no harm campaign basically it's the seven regulations uh, and first of all either of you can take in, in any of these questions but just remind us what are the regulations that we are tracking just give us a quick rundown of what it is we're we're looking at
2: sure so I, I'll try to go I think in the order they came out let me let me preface that with a a quick sort of primer on how the process works when agencies come out with regulations. Mm -hmm. So first they issue, with rare exception, they issue what's called a proposed rule. And then the public has a chance to comment. Anyone can comment on that rule uh, for some period of either 30 or 60 days usually. Then the agency goes back and reviews all those comments, makes any changes to the rule that they think are necessary, and then issues a final rule, which is what is actually like, has legal effect, which is, you know, has the function of law. Um, And that process, usually after the comment period closes, takes like nine months, but it it could be shorter, it could be longer, depends on the rule. Um, So when we say agencies have come out with rules, right now, everything is a proposed rule. Nothing's at a final rule stage yet. So we're sort of in this interim waiting period on, on all of these regulations. Mm. Um, the first ones that, that came out, first was Title IX, which is a regulation about, um, it, it interprets a, a sex discrimination law governing uh, education, schools, education programs, um, uh, non-discrimination law on sex discrimination, it interprets it to include sexual orientation and gender identity um, that's the one where you probably may have seen all the debates about like, um, you know, transgender students playing on the opposite sex sports team, um, sharing bathrooms, restrooms, et cetera. That's that issue. Next was, oh, i sorry, that was out of U.S. Department of Education. Uh, next was from the Health and Human Services Department. Um, that was Section 1557, which is the name of a a part of the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare as people often call it. Um, That too interpreted a sex discrimination provision in the Affordable Care Act to mean sexual orientation and gender identity. So um, do healthcare providers have to perform gender transition procedures? Do they have to, do health insurance companies have to cover gender transition procedures? And there's also some concern that they could, that they were hinting at implications for abortion. So do OB-GYNs have to perform abortions if they, even if they have objections to them, et cetera. Uh, and then there was a lull for a while. And right after Christmas, in the span of just about a month, we got um, uh, four more. Uh, first was um, from, the, from HHS, Health and Human Services, the conscience rule, which is about whether healthcare providers can exercise conscience, conscientious objections to various procedures. Normally, it's, the regulation implements a bunch of different laws, like 25 different laws. Usually those laws say are, are about a specific procedure. So if you have an objection to abortion, you're allowed to, to abstain, to opt out of performing abortions. Um, there are a couple in there that are sort of more broadly applicable, but usually it's, it's focused on abortion sterilization, um, mainly there. Then uh, the contraceptive mandate, as you mentioned, the, the sort of historical uh, impetus for a lot of the current discourse on religious liberty beyond what we, we do here. That was also out of HHS amending existing exemptions in the regulations for uh, people who object to contraception, sterilization, um, and certain drugs that can act as abortion-inducing agents for either religious or moral reasons. Um, So they were tinkering with those exemptions, which we can talk about more later. Then, uh, what is commonly called the Equal Treatment Rule uh, that is a is a joint rulemaking out of nine different agencies it 's about uh, the terms that govern faith based organizations when they enter into partnerships with the federal government so if you're a Catholic charity getting a grant to provide a social service, what obligations do you have to essentially sort of tone down how religious you are when you're interacting with the people you're serving. And last was the, we've referred to as the Religious Liberty and Free Inquiry Rule out of the U.S. Department of Education. That has to do with, um, well, the the changes they're making have to do with uh, religious student groups on campus. Um, how free are religious student groups on public university campuses, I should say, to abide by their own beliefs? Or do they have to play by the same rules in terms of who's, who's allowed to be a leader in the group, um, who's allowed to join the group? Do they have to let just anyone in, let anyone be a leader, or do they, are they allowed to say, you know, to be president of the you know, Catholic students group at University of Virginia, you need to believe what the Catholic Church teaches? Those are the six where we've seen um, proposed rules. There's a seventh out there where the procedural sort of status is really complicated. Um, It has to do with – it's at HHS. It has to do with, again, sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, It's a a rule basically saying if you get any grant, uh, any, any sort of funds from HHS, you're not allowed to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. It's a, in a weird spot where it's technically – those prohib- prohibitions are technically on the books, but there's this old notice of non-enforcement left over that they haven't rescinded yet, and it's just kind of a weird situation. But this, So it's really the, the six previous ones where things are sort of – things are hot. <laughs> things are happening.
1: So – Dan kind of follow-up question or maybe just taking a little bit broader. I mean that's a great overview, but as you're talking and reminding us of all of these, it it kind of strikes me like what like what would Catholic teaching be on these regulations in terms of, you know, the proper role of of government? In other words, what what is a good regulation? What would we say is, oh, this is something that's been proposed recently that has actually you know, protecting our rights and encouraging the freedom of expression. So what, I guess, is the proper role of a regulation and what would be what would we see to be an example in the past of like a good one, a helpful one?
2: One of the funny things about working on regulations is that there's this game of ping pong back and forth between one administration and another. So all of those regulations I, I talked about had previous versions that were issued under the Trump administration. Um, And most of them had previous versions that were issued under the Obama administration before that, and even some reaching back to the Bush administration. So you, for virtually all of them, I could say, oh, well, a good one was the Trump one. But more broadly and conceptually, I I think at a baseline, uh, the church's understanding of how the government should interact with religious people, religious organizations, it it matches up pretty well with – what the First Amendment has to say, and what federal law has to say, and our, our position is that, in a number of respects, the changes being made here that we're concerned about um, don't match up with with what the Constitution and and federal protections for religious liberty require. Pope Benedict talked a lot about a a healthy secularism where the government, plays a role in fostering religious life through sort of keeping its hands off it in part and allowing religious expression and religious communities to flourish. So the religious liberty and free inquiry rule is a good example of that. That's specifically about religious communities. Uh, these are, you know, groups of uh, religious students on secular campuses, public campuses, uh, attempting to create a home for themselves where they can you know, live out the faith in uh, in a community of, uh, of people similarly committed to the faith. And the regulation is sort of attempting to make that more difficult. Madeline, I, you might have some perspective just in terms of, I know you're at Georgetown, so the the regulation doesn't necessarily affect your day-to-day to, day to day life, but just in terms of, um, I know you've been involved in um, some student groups, Catholic student groups at Georgetown, and what, what sort of benefit that has had for you in your your time there, both as a student as just and just sort of more generally as a person trying to grow and, and remain in the faith?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, had involvement in um, Catholic faith groups, both as an undergrad and then also um, in my time in law school. And I think, um, you know, like you were saying, these are, these are groups that foster community. Um, some of my closest friendships um, have developed from you know, those relationships in those student groups. Having uh, the opportunity to engage with these groups on campus also allows myself and other students to gain access to resources that the university has. Um, to really bolster um, kind of whatever we might be engaging in. So putting on events, um, gathering um, for Bible studies. Um, And that really has allowed me to grow in my relationship with God um, and with like-minded individuals. And I know that that's an experience that's shared across faith traditions, not just um, in my own experience as a Catholic, but from other friends, other students who I know of other faith traditions. This has also been an experience that they've had both as an undergrad and also in law school
0: so that one just to be clear what what it essentially would do that particular rule is make it where anybody could be a leader of your organization and that like of any of a student group that to be that's officially recognized on campus. and so then if you didn't follow it, like as you're saying, you wouldn't be allowed to use certain campus facilities so like one example for my own undergrad that i remember pretty well was um, pretty like almost all the religious groups worked together for this i don't remember if it was i think it was a week of like it was like holocaust remembrance week or something so it was like the jewish group had displays through our in our student union buildings called the memorial student center but then like that was one of my first interactions with the catholic group on campus um because the Catholic Student Center hosted, you know, showed films and stuff like that. But if if that Jewish group had not w- wanted to abide by this a rule like this, as I went to a state school. They couldn't have set their stuff up in the in the MSC, right? Is that what I'm like? They wouldn't have been able to use the school resources to right. That's that. That's what this would mean.
2: Yeah, they would effen- effectively be an unofficial off-campus group. It, you know, nothing prevents students from gathering in right. the privacy of their own homes or apartments or whatever. But yeah, they wouldn't have been able to to have a spot at the auditorium, the you know, event hall, whatever. Mm-hmm. And just to to explain, people might be wondering why would the government not? Why would the government want? Just anyone to be able to be a leader. Yeah, it's a strange, a religious student group. counterintuitive and, kind of thing. And the what's happening is they they say religious student groups have to abide by the same non discrimination rules as everyone else, and in most respects, that's fine. And in, in fact, good. You know, obviously, we don't, we don't want religious student groups discriminating on the basis of race or disability. That that that's against what we teach. It's this understanding of what it means to discriminate on the basis of again sexual orientation and gender identity, where what we what we see as a disagreement over some pretty foundational philosophical, theological, doctrinal ideas, um they see as just discrimination on the basis of status. You know, indistinguishable from race or disability. Mm-hmm. in the same way that someone is um, is black or is disabled, they are gay. They are transgender. and we you know think that's a false equivalence. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what's going on. They're, they're saying uh, if you require your leaders to affirm the church's understanding of marriage, that's discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Therefore, you're, you're not allowed to, to be a student group.
0: I mean, it's weird, though, because a person could identify as gay but still support the church's teaching and just say, well, I live like as a celibate. like yeah. Or they could like think of themselves as being same-sex attracted maybe is the more precise way to put it. Right. But, like they they could still say like, but I still live chastely. So you're not – like you're saying, it's not about the status in a lot of ways, we want to say it's about the mission of the organization. Like, I'm, there was a, an organization at A and M where I went to school, like the Aggie Spelunking, Um Club. But imagine like a leader who was like, "We're not going. We're not going into any caves." <laughs> <laughs> like, I, like it doesn't make any. Yeah, like the whole point is. I the, love of, my conscience, dude. Yeah. Into caves. The, the whole point of a group is is to. Foster the beliefs of the group. Like it wouldn't make any sense to have a leader who rejected the, what the group is about. So anyway.
1: Yeah. uh, yeah. And if I could ask ask about the the conscience rule, because that's interesting to me, especially when we think about like you could literally have no faith at all. And the conscience rule would, you know, the protection, the rights of your conscience to act in accord with your deeply held beliefs. Right. So that's kind of, isn't that an area where we've seen Catholics, And other faiths kind of come together and and agree on some of these uh, on rights of conscience
2: I I think in some respects yes in in the the sense that conscience is what all faiths have in common or what's what everyone has in common And, and you're right to note that the the rule and the laws that are at issue in the conscience rule are generally not limited to the exercise of religious belief where you know, the, the person asserting rights to being protected under this, this rule would say, well, I am a Catholic and therefore this. It, it can just be upon you know, deep reflection, you know, I, I have this, this conscientious objection to, to being required to perform an abortion, assist in an abortion. Normally the the courts look – take a sort of close look at that sort of thing to prevent the the objections like this being uh, asserted on just as false pretense or insincerely. Um, But they do protect non-religious moral objections. And even a few of them protect simply any – a desire to abstain from abortion for any reason at all. It need not even be based in conscience. And that is that's written into, you know, the law, the Weldon Amendment, that's in federal statutes, and reflects a judgment by Congress that, you know, abortion is one of those issues where the government just really shouldn't be pushing people to do what they don't want to do. And yeah, we see via the conscience rule and some other regulations some intrusion into that sort of sphere about of autonomy that the law has tended over the years to to respect.
0: You mentioned that we've had these proposed rules. What is the USCCB doing? Like, what are we doing about this? How have we been getting involved? <laughs> what are you doing, <laughs> Dan? <laughs> Weeping and gnashing Why my teeth. Why don't you just do something? Yeah.
2: <laughs> so the Do No Harm Initiative, we started... So in the, in the normal course of things here, when a regulation comes out that we either like a lot or, or dislike, so we file comments during the comment period, and sometimes we put out an action alert, and sometimes we meet with um, agency or, or government officials to talk about it and make sure our, our perspective is heard. Um, and the Do No Harm initiative was sort of uh, one roof put over those existing efforts, um because we saw these seven different regulations all having in common some threat to religious liberty and uh, the the other point of it was to say look there are seven different regulations happening all of which have you know bear some threat to religious liberty this seems like an event in and of itself that's worth calling attention to so we've been pushing out action alerts getting people asking people to file comments uh, publishing some resources online for people trying to understand what's going on. Uh, and I have to say we've been really, really pleased with the turnout that we've gotten from the public uh, on these comments. Um, again, going back to the the religious liberty and free inquiry rule about religious student groups. Um, I think the the most – I think the total comments received by the Department of Education was – 58,000 or so, um, which was a lot because it was only a 30-day comment period, which is unusually short and I don't know why they did that. But we, our action alert, you listeners, uh, generated uh, 13, uh, almost 13,000 of those yeah. comments. Wow. Uh, so um, a fifth, over a fifth, which is fantastic. And that's not far off from the turnout um, the participation we've seen on some other rules too. Uh, so people, um, if you're not signed up for, for our alert list, you're missing out. It's where, <laughs> it's where the action that's is
1: fun. And, and many thanks to all those people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's incredible. Each and every one is, and I think I remember last time we talked about this, you said that it is liter- like someone literally has to read and respond to every single comment. Is that right?
2: Yeah, every unique comment. Okay. So that's why when you get these alerts from us, it says add your own, you know, add your own perspective. Um, it, it, any comment, even if if it's totally duplicative of another, is good because the agency does see they 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 can't help themselves. They do account and they say, oh well, you know. 40,000 of these comments were in opposition to the rule and only uh, 18,000 were in support and they 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 consider that Um, but if you submit a comment that is unique um, has your own your own thoughts your own perspective in it yeah some guy in in the hubert Humphrey building uh, down at hhs has to sit and read it and if it raises a a substantive issue they have to respond they have to Take it into account and, uh, and explain why they did or did not do what you said they should do. So it's this: it, we, we tend to view the administrative state as this sort of opaque black box. You, you know, all the, all these bureaucrats inside their concrete office buildings are doing secret things and. We, you know, we never know what's going on going on in there but the the regulatory process provides this unusual avenue for any anyone any citizen out there to tell HHS what they think and to make them listen and respond so it's to, to people who are not administrative law geeks that might not be cool but to me, it's kind of cool. Well,
1: it's I, kind of interesting, you know, to sit and think about what what angle on this could I think of and, and write in about, and they would, you know, to for you know, they're gonna this is gonna be interesting for that guy yeah. in a cubicle with no window, and you know, yeah. he's gonna write to me, and I'm gonna make a point no one else makes, and you know, you could get creative with it. Well,
2: I think Madeline, I think part of the reason the religious student group rule got such good engagement is that it's a very personal issue. If you were part of a religious student group and you see a rule being proposed that's going to diminish those groups' ability to survive, then, you know, that affects, that sort of has an emotional resonance with you. Uh, so I think stories, people tell stories. Here's this formative experience I had when I was in my student, my religious student group. Um, you know, don't take that away from from the current generation. And you'll see that reflected um, when they... When agencies publish their final rules, they'll go through and say, we, you know, we received anecdotes about people who met their spouses in their religious student groups, people who discerned a vocation in their religious student groups. So you, you, can, you can make a difference. You can <laughs> well, do it.
0: I have a question about that, though, because um, you actually worked in one of these agencies, so you have a sense of how these, how these things go. And sorry, this was not a prepared question, Uh-oh. so I hope I don't catch you off guard. But, like, I don't know, it kind of goes back to, in some ways, to Mary's question, too, about, like, the different roles of the branches of government. I mean, these so these agencies fall under the executive branch, right? And that's, we normally, though, don't think of them as, like, that they're making laws. So even when you're advocating, I guess my sense is that what the the person working in an administrative agency, they're supposed to be trying to make rules that interpret the laws that were passed by the democratically elected Congress, yes. right? So they're and so I, I would assume what they're considering are things like court decisions you know the intricacies of of maybe some of the legislative history i don't know like does that play a role and like it, it that when they issue new regulations it should be turning on technical i imagine them really being you say geeks i'm using your word here so i'm not, <laughs> I, I i assume that the people who work in these cubicles are the geeks like who just like know everything about you know all the decisions and all like that it, it's a certain kind of thing that they're looking for as opposed to the person who's working on the hill when they're they're trying to pass laws to get reelected right or they're trying to make their constituents happy so i guess what i wonder then is like th- the story piece i don't know that kind of worries me a little <laughs> bit that <but, but> like <laughs> but i guess maybe it's you know they're still the per the people who have to take the comments into account, can still be moved by things like anecdotes. But I don't know. There's a part of me that's like, is that the way it's supposed to work? That yeah. they <laughs> that they're moved by anecdotes. I mean, they're supposed to be sort of unfeeling. <laughs> <laughs> <Mindless> <laughs> a- I don't know. I mean, I yeah. mean this in a pot. If if if, right. if if you knew me, you would know I actually mean this in the most positive way. Like I think I- I've joked about this before that I think that. That carrying out the duties that uh, to make a bureaucracy function is actually a path to holiness. Like I think that it, that it's really important to be to to be willing to sort of not always put your own personal thing on things and to mm-hmm. to simply you know make the organization work. So I don't mean any of this like pejoratively if it comes across that way. But so, but so then I kind of sort of like I don't know. Do I want them to? to to be moved by stories I kind of don't want them to be moved by stories Yeah, sorry (laughs)
2: no it makes sense and I think the administrative process the rule making process has a very different feel to it from one agency to another because of very different subject matters so like the nuclear regulatory commission like they're not considering anecdotes they're considering like half-lifes and uh, you know very technical scientific type stuff yeah, yeah. and that's where you have i think the strongest argument for why the administrative state functions the way it does because congress you know they're they're lawyers and dentists and real estate guys who got elected to Congress. They don't know anything about nuclear power. So they're going to write pretty broad laws that say, you geeks, you you figure out how to make this work. Here are, we can identify these basic goals of safety and whatnot, but we can't tell you exactly how to achieve it. The geeks are in charge now. Then you get stuff like the conscience rule, where you have healthcare experts making rules about conscience, where there is no, there's not necessarily expertise. You know, maybe they can claim expertise in the sort of clinical implications, but not about what it means to have a soul (laughs) or Mm -hmm. you know so that's true
0: that's that's a good point on these particular issues the stories matter because you're talking about the the human side of it all well and
1: especially all the the problems now that i mean parents who are not being notified that their child is claims you know is identifying as another gender and wants you know trans to to have uh, surgery to try to attempt to become another sex. Like I, that's an area that is really, I mean, that is heating up. And so, I mean, maybe you, one of you could talk about a little bit more like, it seems to me like the title nine rule is the one that is sort of is, is, I mean, it's basically going to try to enshrine this sort of gender ideology into education. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Um, so the, the rule, uh, is a sort of, a study in ambiguity where they they don't get into great specifics or detail about exactly what it requires of schools. So um, the parental notification of, of students who are behaving as the opposite sex in the school environment, they don't get into that. But they do say you know, schools cannot harass or discriminate against students because of their gender identity. And you sort of have to, have to tease out what that rule means as applied to that kind of situation. And you can imagine it having the results we're concerned about where, so say, you know, Sally, um, Sally shows up to school and she changes into pants and puts on a hat to hide her you know, long hair, and the school notifies the Sally's parents, you know Sally was wearing boy clothes today, or whatever. Well, if the school didn't also report all of the the girls who were wearing girl clothes, and that might be discrimination on the basis of gender identity because they've singled out that one person, that one student for behaving differently. So, yeah, you're right. That the the sort of parental rights in education, parental rights over student or uh, their their children's upbringing and behavior, um, you know who who should play the defining role in raising a child? Is it the parent or the state? That's a very hot topic right now, as is the abortion all the the various abortion angles in the wake of of Dobbs and all the state level stuff that's happening. So yeah, these are kind of obscure inner workings here, in, you know, inside the beltway type stuff. But they are about issues that people all over the country are thinking about and worried about. So in that sense, you know, we we're again doubly happy that we got such good such good participation from from everyone uh, because these are issues of broad concern, broad appeal.
1: Well, and I think one of the challenges is if you don't understand regulations and I, this is not my area of expertise. So this is, you know, I, it, it's hard for, I think for people to see like how this actually could affect their daily lives, you know, in Dubuque, Iowa, or, you know, Colorado Springs, Colorado, like actually in my local community, these regulations can change like what the law says I am not allowed to do or allowed to do. like. And so I think like, as you're saying, if it's, if it's sort of on, you know ambiguous and you're not clear what this means well then it's not people don't quite see until it's in their faces and maybe the the proposed rules are permanent rules or regulations like oh wow this is this is really bad this really restricts my ability to live the way that i i want to according to my faith so so i mean maybe that leads us to like where what is the status of some of these regulations like how close are they to becoming final
2: yes yeah. so title nine and section 1557 so, the sexual orientation, gender identity in schools, and sexual orientation, gender identity in healthcare, those came out last summer July for Title IX, and September for Section 1557, I think. So, we're getting up on the period of time when you might expect to see the final rule. They got tons and tons of comments on both of those. And it takes a long time to sort through them all. So it would be, they'd be hustling if they got them out in the next month or two.
1: Oh, so that's another angle where, excuse me for interrupting, but where, if there are more comments, then that can delay yeah. the right. timeline of when they're actually final rules. Yeah.
2: I I cannot, I, I mean, my, I spent so much of my life for a period of two years when I was at HHS, just... Looking at the biggest spreadsheet you've ever seen in your life, <laughs> like manually logging points, arguments made, and public comments into this giant spreadsheet, so we could sort through and see what was like what was a, a common theme. It takes a really long time. There's no fancy software to do it. They have people literally typing in. It's kind of comments. like
0: discernment, kind of like the synod.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um <laughs> anyway so uh so where we are title 9 section 1557 you know conceivably could happen soon in the next 3 months or so um the other ones they they came out late december through mid february december of last year through mid february this year so unlikely to see the conscience rule, which was the first of those until at least the fall. But then again, it's not like we'll be bored because we'll have Title IX and Section 57 final rules to think about in the meantime. So in terms of what to do in that lag, the opportunity for direct engagement with the federal government is largely gone, though the comment periods have closed on all of them. If you're, if you're a real overachiever, you can schedule a meeting directly with the White House in um, a brief period. There is an office in the off, uh, a sub office in the Office of Management and Budget called the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs. They are in charge of managing the entire federal government's rulemaking process. When a federal agency has its final draft, of a rule, a regulation, they send it to OIRA, Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and OIRA sends it around to all the other federal agencies to say, "Are you? Do you have any problems with this?" And then they also have what's called um, the name. The name is too obscure to even mention. They have these public meetings where you can actually say, "I, Jane Smith, want to talk to the Office of." information and regulatory affairs about this rule, and you'll have a, a half-hour conference call with people in the White House. And they just, it's super awkward because they don't ask you any questions. You just speak into the oblivion for for a half hour. But then your concerns are on the record. And it's, you, you got to have a conference call with the White House. So again, the, these avenues for engagement are there
0: it does seem like i know i've made this comment to you both on the podcast and i think probably even off the podcast it almost seems more democratic (laughs) because if you did that if if you had a meeting with your representative they don't have to do they can just blow you off right i mean like it's more regulated it seems like how how the how regulations get through is more regulated itself. So like you can get on the record in all these ways. It just seems sort of counterintuitive. But like if but but you could you know you could call and write letters and all that to your representative or your senator and they just be like the person's not gonna vote for me anyway, so I don't care Yeah I don't hey, care what they say. It is know? ironic.
2: <laughs> it's ironic that the you know what I think most people would regard as the most obscure and sort of impenetrable aspect of our lawmaking process is actually the one that affords real opportunities for individual members of the public to be involved. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, Ira. Oh, Ira. I'm going
2: to look that up, Ira. <laughs> oh, Ira.
1: Okay. So, it, let's say there's a final rule And what recourse do we have if it absolutely is just horrible and we don't like it? (sighs) (laughs) I had to ask the question.
2: Um,
1: Sue, right? I mean, I I don't
2: want to say, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so again, what started this all was the contraceptive mandate. That kicked off a decade of litigation. Back to the game of regulatory ping pong, what you see with a lot of these rules from one administration to another is Administration A issues a rule. People oppose it, sue. Um, It gets struck down. Administration B issues its own rule, its own replacement. People who worked in Administration A who are now in the private sector, sue. It gets struck down. So it's this sort of silly game in that respect where it's really hard to get a regulation actually on the books because you have to go through – Basically, if you don't get a regulation done in the first two years of an administration, the odds of it ever being actually effective, like people have to obey this, are fairly low because you're still going to be in litigation by the time you're voted out. You have to build in this lead time to litigate the rule and win, which is a sort of sad state of affairs.
0: But is it like that only for controversial, yeah, the controversial type controversial. stuff, yeah, like not yeah, for yeah. just normal yeah. – it's kind of like with Supreme Court decisions. Most of them are not these 5-4 split decisions. It's Those are just the ones that – Make the news. Yeah, the yeah, people pay attention to who don't follow this stuff all the time.
2: Yeah, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's rules are not getting – they're not getting litigated. Yeah. It's the, the hot-button stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think just to wrap us up, there's one question here that we haven't um, really addressed, and that's why, why is it called the Do No Harm Campaign? So We're just throwing that around and yeah, i I'd give you a chance to...
2: The, there's this concept of Do No Harm that people understand from the Hippocratic Oath. It's sort of you know, one of those pieces of information you just sort of absorb as a person... <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, enough of these regulations do have to do with healthcare mm-hmm. that we thought you know it's that, that that's a, a nice sort of tie-in because we're talking about procedures you know abortion sterilization gender transition uh, surgeries um, where you know, the Catholic Church teaches those are those are doing harm. Mm-hmm. To a person, and the you know the government should respect and honor people's rights to not harm other people, but under you know thought of in a more more metaphorical sense, you know all of these regulations we were concerned about doing harm to something mm-hmm. um, do no harm to religious student groups on campus, do no harm to children in public schools so that that's sort of the idea. The, the The status quo was one going into the um, this administration where the, the regulations in place. We thought adequately, for the most part, adequately protected these these rights, these sort of spheres of uh, of of conscience and and individual freedom. And the concern was, well, you know, all seven of these threaten that in some respect.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, all of the information and a lot of what we've discussed can be found at www.usccb slash do hyphen no hyphen harm. So do no harm, but with hyphens between the words. Um, but really, thank you so much. This is really informative. Um, Madeline, what Madeline, you only have a month left of school. Are you, you going to go work in one of these agencies? <laughs> Maybe someday you will read one of our comments.
3: Uh, maybe no. In the in the short term, I've got the bar ahead of me this summer, and Uh then um, we'll be in a uh, in private practice, um, most immediately.
2: Do you hear many of your classmates talk about going into civil service and working for the federal government?
3: Um, you know, I think, you know, law school brings together all you know all different you know types of of students, um, individuals. So yeah, I think there's a fair number. Um, who are you know interested in um, working for the federal government? Interested in administrative law?
2: Yeah, it's a. I would say it's an. Obviously, it has its downsides. Working for the federal government, um, not not the most agile, dynamic sort of workplace. But for faithful Catholics wanting to make a difference, there are places in the federal government that are good opportunities to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I think that, you know, law students and sort of Politico types, you know, young people think I'm going to work for like a a 501c3 doing, you know, advocacy work, or I'm going to go work on the Hill. But working in an actual agency or the Congressional Research Service, which puts out incredibly useful primers on different types of law, you know, if you're a listener wondering, you know, what, what I want to go work in politics or something like that. Government work's not a bad, not a bad move. Mm -hmm. Um, and you get, you get cubicles, which is great. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe a window. I did. I had a window for most of my time there.
0: Well, again, thank you so much. It was really informative. Um, really appreciate it. And again, like, if you go to the web page, you can kind of see a lot of some of the things. Not this was a little deeper dive than we have on the web page, but you can still get get a lot of that at the website. Um, so really appreciate all the work that's been done on this. Uh, it's been a good campaign, I think. Uh, I mean, we generated a lot of comments, so I think that that was good. Uh, and we always hear back from other groups that like we have people really appreciate all the materials mm-hmm. we put out. So thanks a lot. Again, we've been talking with. Dan Balzrak and Madeline Ostertag about the regulations that have been proposed or, um, well, yeah, that had all been proposed by this point, uh, different federal agencies. Again, that information can be found at www.usccb.org do hyphen no hyphen harm. Uh, I'm Aaron Weldon.
1: And I'm Mary McCluskey. And thank you for listening to this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. <music>